special guest but first of all your usual nysc co-hosts will introduce themselves and this is amayo by the way hi everyone this is ife hey everyone this is ifeyua and today we have salem sony hopefully i'm pronouncing that right um who actually reached out to us and has a very interesting story background um and is really just going to share much about his life. So Salem, Salem, do you want to introduce yourself? Just a brief background. Well, thank you for having me here, ladies. I, I am honored. I listened to your podcast. It was uh, actually given to me by a good friend of mine. He said, listen, this is one of the top African podcasts. So I was like, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I definitely yeah. wanted to come. Exactly. <laughs> so job well done. Keep it up. Um, thank you. Thank you. A little bit about myself. Uh, my name is um, Salem Sony. Well, I mean, originally I'm from the Congo, so my name is pronounced Salem Sony. But um, oh. you know, when I came to America, uh, that it's kind of part of my story. So I changed the pronunciation <laughs> to Salem Sony because it's much easier. Uh, people used to be like Salam, Salim. So I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, God. It's Salem like the cat. So. Um, <laughs> I was born in, like I said, Kinshasa, Congo, that is in the heart of Africa, and um, uh, grew up most of my life really abroad. Uh, I came to the United States and have lived here. Uh, interesting story. My family was came basically as political refugees, and um, my story from there really kind of took uh, some interesting turns. Uh, today, I am a professional speaker. Uh, I'm a world traveler. I'm actually currently coming to you guys from Belgium. I'm in Belgium currently. And nice. um, I have a passion for uh, inspiring the youth and young adults. Uh, I'm also a believer. Um, I'm a lover. I'm a son. I have three sisters. Uh, that's a little bit about who I am, if uh, I can say I'm an entrepreneur by nature. So that kind of like makes up a, a good portion of who I am today. Nice. Okay, I have a quick question before we jump into this. But so coming to the States, right, and people calling you Salem, did you get the reference like the cat at that point? Where you were like, what are these people talking about? <laughs> good question. I had no idea. Actually, it's funny. <laughs> before we got to the cat thing, people used to always tell me like um, Salem like witch, witch trial. Right? Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. is it Salem like the witches? I'm like, I don't oh, even know what that means. But, you know, being African, <laughs> we just know that, like, anything with witches is not good. Okay, yeah, <laughs> so, I, I was like, no. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so it was an interesting transition with the name, for sure. Yeah. I, I found that funny because I was like, I would have not gotten that reference if I was fresh out of Nigeria. True. Just yes. my head. Mm. All right. So, you've told us about yourself, what you do. So I guess we'll just jump into it. So I, I guess to kind of frame what this session or what this episode is going to be about, the theme or the topic is losing one's African identity at the cost of fitting in and then finding it again. So thanks, Salem, for coming up with that wonderful topic. I it's literally just stole that from your email. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So could you tell us more about growing up in the Congo? So life before the war during the war like how it started your experiences and you know all that it took to flee congo at that time so life in congo i would say was really some beautiful days and having having been born in a family where i had both my mom and my dad um i'm the only brother of three girls so uh i grew up in a family where like i wasn't the oldest and i wasn't the youngest so i'm like kind of like the third child, which is like you care about your first child for sure, and you care about the mm-hmm. last one. The middle children they have to fight for attention. So yep, that's me. <laughs> exactly. So being the the only boy, it helped me a little bit to separate myself from, from my sisters. 
Um, but it was an incredible time, really, when I was young. Um, I, both of my parents are ministers, so uh, I was basically in, like, growing up in church all my life. Like, I we used to go to church, like, eight days a week. I mean, it was, well, like, <laughs> got got so tired of, of it after a while, but... A lot of the foundation of like my character were instilled to me when I was young. Uh, I still remember our parents started very uh, relatively poor, if I have to say. I mean, we, we even started like their first church under a mango tree. And then oh, wow. about 10 years later, they had close to like 18 and like 20,000 members, you know, in many different churches. Mm-hmm. And they had many people oh, wow. under them. So, you know, things really looked good i got to a point where in africa you know when you've made it where you start going to private school where like with a chauffeur <laughs> like the chauffeur is driving you to your private school that's when you feel like you've made it you know and uh so that was kind of the case like i used to go really far almost like an hour drive to go to school like every day i would like you know be driven so life was relatively good you know i'm not trying to say mm-hmm. that we're super rich but we were comfortable so so yeah in the mix of all that was happening you know me trying to really kind of like enjoy the whole this whole life and being a a a child you know what i mean around this time when really things started going our way i was about like nine ten years old and uh things started looking up like dad started traveling more started having a lot of contacts and uh, I enjoyed that time. You know, I enjoyed spending time with family. I enjoyed spending time of the fellowship that we had. It was just an incredible time overall. Um, things really started changing, especially for Congo, when uh, uh, Kabila, which Kabila the father, for those who are familiar with the Congolese um, uh, historical politics a little bit, is we've had Mobutu and many people are familiar with Mobutu. This, he was a dictator and, um, this guy ruled Congo for like 32 years. So the guy who came after him was a guy named Kabila, which he, he came in power around, people would say around like 2001 per se. 2000, 2001. Trouble was really started in the like late nineties, but in 2001, that's really where the transition of power came. And during that time, there was a lot of unrest so a lot of things happened. That man was actually assassinated and his son became president um, in like good African fashion of doing things. So <laughs> that that happened to now. The problem was the political regime. I, I wanted to kind of like, how can I put this? Whenever you're in a situation where we were, where you have such an influence because you're a pastor and you have so many people you will receive, the government want to make sure you're on their side. You know, mm-hmm. and um, because that being so, uh, at multiple times, they would always want like my dad or ministry to reflect their opinions. Like, for example, if they're they want, you know, us to tell our members that they're good and all that stuff. You guys understand, like, you know, having mm-hmm. trying to have an influence yeah. and, you know, having having integrity, having trying to not do that. We were always, you know, with a lot of wisdom, trying to not play their game. And um, we continued to do so for a couple of years. And it was kind of like this back and forth dance of them trying to bribe and influence us and us saying, no, we're going to stay true to our core. And then uh, later around 2003, 2004, uh, a lot of international organizations started program because the war that happened in Congo that led for the Kabila, the fathers to come in, it came from the east side of Congo going towards the west. The capital, Kinshasa, is from the east. And, like, mm-hmm. the neighboring countries of Congo from the the east side who were going towards the west, what happened was they used a lot of child soldiers. Yeah. So what would happen is there were a lot of child soldiers involved in the war. So when the war, I would say, temporarily stopped because today is still going on, but it's just not as well advertised, but it's still war going on in east part of Congo. But at the time, when the war uh, went to somewhat of a, a peace time, what they decided to do a lot of international organization is do what we call the reinstitutionalization of child soldiers into society. Mm-hmm. So you have to demilitize them. Uh, many of them are like uh, psychologically brainwashed, you know, like really messed up things. So you have to really put programs together to really help them. That being said, a lot of international organizations were pouring money for those programs that would send those people. But as you can imagine, 
everywhere there's money and politicians, you understand the recipe of things. So the reason why that is relevant to us, my family particularly, is because my uncle, my dad, direct younger brother. He was also a pastor in our church, but he did like um, uh, his study, specific study, was in this field of rehabilitation in terms of trying to rehabilitate a lot of child soldiers into civilian life. So he would manage like big budget that would come from the IMF, World Bank, and all the other uh, international organization that would send money for those type of programs. But the problem that would happen is, and I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to put anybody down, uh, but they would say, for example, they would send money like a hundred million dollars for a project. And some politicians would come and take half and be like, okay, figure out how to justify the $50 million project when it takes a hundred million to get it done. So after a while being a pastor, you know, at a church, having the integrity that he had, you started standing up against them. Started saying no, started saying that, you know, that's not correct. What is going on? So what ended up happening is he was assassinated actually at a gas station. Um, so something that is interesting when that happened was the day he was assassinated, they actually had confused him with my dad because they looked so similar. So the plan was to have him killed and then have him come on the site and kill both of them on the same time. So crazy stuff. Um, and then we, we got a phone call and my dad was basically told not to come on scene because the scene wasn't safe enough because they were still waiting for one target, which was him. Um, this is like some straight Hollywood stuff. Like, and I'm like, at this time I'm like 11, right? And I'm like, what is going on? I think I was 12 years old. To fast forward a little bit from what, what was going on. So now the war in the country started picking up. Basically, to bring it back in more of a geopolitical thing, the people who, I would say, went from the east side of Congo and came all the way to the west into the capital, the person who gained power basically said to the people who helped them gain power, like, forget you guys, I want the pie for myself. <laughs> and, you know, that created friction. So now that we're starting war emerging again on that side of the country, which now created a lot of insecurities. And like now, if you are like unstable with the political power that's already in there, they just put you in the whole mix of what is going on. So because my father was so frustrated what was going on, he basically took the Congolese government to the international court. Um, Yeah, some really crazy stuff. Um, So because that happened, he, it was, became more and more unsafe. Even the the day of the funeral of my uncle, they told him already, like, you need to stop with this lawsuit that you're doing and everything. So, so did your dad take them to court because of um, the assassination of your uncle? Yes. He took them to court specifically because um, what had happened is they had lied. They said that what happened was there was a robbery at a gas station which caused the death of my uncle. But the gas station is adjacent to a police station. And, like, literally, when I say adjacent, like, the policemen, this is from the eyewitness that were on the ground that night, they said that the police people were actually standing by their door watching what was going on. And throughout the process is like they see that there's like people being shot and everything, but they, they did not intervene. They did not come mm-hmm. to stop what was going on until like a couple hours later after like the, the situation was then, they knew that my dad would no longer be coming. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was definitely... Like, it couldn't have been a robbery if, if you know, that was in those conditions that my dad really wanted justice for his brother, that it took him to court. So in order to try to intimidate him, in order to try to silence him, they kept making threats over and over. During that same time, my father's still a pastor. He's still leading a relatively growing church. He has a lot of conferences that he's doing. Uh, he just did a meeting with a, you know, for those who are familiar a little bit, with a relatively big man of God who has done some work in Africa. His name is T.L. Osborne. He's worked with people like Renard Blanque and stuff. So the guy did this meeting. There was over 100,000 people there. It was really huge. And so now my dad is invited to go to the UK. And since that day, that was 2005, my dad has never set foot in Congo. 
because he he was the Congolese government has branded him as a um, person non grata, basically mm-hmm. meaning that he's an enemy of the state, so he cannot uh, set foot into Congo as long as the current government is still in power. Um, because that was the case, um, we became unsafe also where we were to a point where we even had to leave their house where we used to live in. Um, I still, until today, I still know, I still don't know where we went, but I still remember for four days and four nights, we didn't get out. We were in one room. I remember it was me, my mom, my three sisters, and we, we just kept hearing gunshot. I mean, this was really crazy. This is really where, like, some of the rebels made it all the way to the capital. They started shooting people. It was really crazy. One thing started, and I remember there was, like, helicopters and, and choppers coming. Like, you could hear, like, gunshot. I mean, this was, like, stuff that you hear about, but you never really live through it. Um, mm-hmm. When all that came to somewhat of a steal, came at peace, we now left the, I would say, hiding place and went back to our home and we saw there were bullet holes all over our home so we knew that we were no longer safe there we were actually targeted um the reason why we knew that is because the homes that were next to us were not as shot at as much as ours were so that's when you know that you're being singled out so what happened was now we started deciding to try to find a way to leave the 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 country and i remember with my mom um, we started going to mini embassy because my dad just had went to the UK. So the only logical thing was to go to the UK embassy and to try to get a visa. And for all my Africans yeah. out there who are going through the visa acquiring process, that is just as bad as just, you know, living, being poor in Africa because that is such a humiliating process. Sometimes it's so hard unless you have a lot of connections and, and the problem is also is that now the Congolese government already headed out for my dad, right? So they were saying all these negative things about us to the, the British government. Well, at least not the British government, but whoever the representative at the embassy were. Mm-hmm. So we basically got denied. We got denied mm-hmm. visa to go to the UK. And it was really discouraging. We went back a second time and still got denied. And then one day we went back the third time and my mom got so frustrated on the way out. She said, let's just go to the U.S. Embassy and try it. And we got the visa. So actually, weirdly enough, we were never supposed to come to the U.S. We were supposed to go join dad in the U.K. So we got granted to be able to go to uh, the, the U.S. And... Mind you, by the way, this is one thing I love African parents because sometimes about the toughness they have. During this whole time, the reason I can tell the story with a lot of conviction today is because now I'm older. Now I was able to piece a little bit back of what happened. But remember, at that time, I'm like 12 years old. You know, I'm not really understanding what is going on. Our parents are shielding so much from us. Like, for example, when we were going to the, to the U.S., our mom only told us we we're going on vacation. But the crazy part that was weird to us because we were leaving in August and school was starting in August. So we were like, are we going on a short vacation? Like, are we going to lose? Like, when school was started, it was really strange. Um, But during that time, I remember our parents sold everything because think about this it's easier maybe when you're 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 traveling one person at a time but when you have to take your whole family like this is basically like five people at one time and the plane ticket like for example i remember to travel all of us it was like six thousand dollars per person and you have to pay all that at once for six people that's like 30 grand to move right so it was really some people came and really loved on us and really made it possible i'm still indebted to those guys today because they really had an impact in us in our lives so, long story short, we, we left, we moved, we came to the States. And it took even some few months for us to be rejoined with our dad. Um, so, that's basically a little bit of, like, the journey of childhood all the way to <laughs> leaving and coming to, coming to America. Yeah, so this is the thing. Just quick question. How many years ago was that you leaving Congo to come to the U.S.? How many years ago was that? This was 13 years ago. Mm, wow. Okay, so at that point, your dad was still in the UK, um, and then you 
and your three sisters and your mom went to the states and then yes. so did your dad come to the states to or did you guys finally get the visa or were you able to visit your dad in the uk no that dad actually later came from the uk and joined okay. us in the okay. states yes. okay okay all right so wow sorry about your uncle that's really tragic yeah, um, I wanted to ask, so for people who are not familiar with, like, the Congo and, you know, historical background, can you, like, give us, like, a, I don't know, a five-minute history lesson about the Congo? Okay, cool. If, you, if, you, <laughs> if you're if you up for it, no pressure. No, not you, a, you know what's funny about Africans is I feel like every African always, like, bears with them the responsibility of their history of their country. Mm. I so, know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the Congo is at the heart of Africa, so I call it basically the one place paradise that is always doom and gloom. Ironically, mm-hmm. Congo has a lot of Congo, for example, has one of the largest um, uh, natural resources of a product called coltan. And the reason I'm telling you about coltan is because coltan is at the very root of many of the war that is going on in Congo. Why? Coltan mm-hmm. is a natural resource that is high on uh, high-resistance electrode, meaning it can hold a lot of electricity through its currents. Mm. So it is mm. it's used into the motherboard of a lot of, like, chips. Electronics, yeah. Electronics, exactly. So because of that, 80% of the world cotton is in Congo, 80%. Yeah. And wow, the other 20% crazy. are, are like, the other 20% that's remaining... 15 of it is under the Pacific Ocean and three of it is in Australia and like the rest is... So people can't say that they use a lot of cotton without taking it from Congo. That's basically what I'm saying, right? It's impossible. <laughs> um, so because so much of it is in Congo, uh, that has really created a lot of the war that happened. Just to give you guys a perspective, remember when I told you that the war really in Congo was around from the late 1999 to 2001? During the same time of late 1991 to 2001, PlayStation and Sony produced the PS2. Wow, that's mad. And Direct correlation. And Apple produced the iPod. And <laughs> Microsoft finally were planning to release the Zoom. So the reason I'm saying this is because those things played a very vital role that you can even see today of the ramification that they had on people all over, like a kid somewhere in South Dakota playing his Xbox, not seeing that another kid in the East Hills of Congo was dying because of that one kid having to have that product, right? Mm-hmm. And so if that was the reason I'm giving us that little bit of a history. I'm going to go back to the beginning. So Congo is uh, originally was a Belgian colony. So it's actually the only Belgian colony or well, Throughout the whole world. It was a Belgian colony because at first it was the private property of the king of Belgium. I find it really wild that somebody like a king from Europe can land in Africa and call an entire con- an entire region. It's like, what the, what the actual, Sister, what the actual fuck? Me, me and you, man. Me and you are trying to figure out what's <laughs> going on. Oh the, my God. The reason that it's so wild in the story of Congo is because one king, his name was King Leopold II. So King Leopold II, what was really interesting about him is um, when he bought Congo, he actually did not want any Congo Who did he leave. buy? Who did he buy <laughs> I was from? like, wait, what do you mean like, by when he, he bought, bought Congo? Congo? Like, what, what, like, you know, <laughs> well, who did he, he buy from? from? Who sold How it much? to him? Who <laughs> said know, he could take it? I don't know. Uh-uh. Well, the reality is when there was... Um, so King Leopold II, Congo was first actually colonized by many other kingdoms. Actually, people don't know this, but the Spaniard trying to colonize Congo, the Portuguese trying to colonize Congo. Actually, Congo was written with a K, so it was C. It was K O N G O, because if if you understand, in a lot of the Portuguese lingual, they don't they don't read C's, they read K's. So the Congo Kingdom at the time with um, uh, Zingankuvu, this is like 1685 or 1686, something like that. Um, Congo was under Portuguese uh, 
leadership, I would say, governance or, you know, mm. basically... People Colonization. Would, colonization. Basically, that's what it is. People with guns and or swords or more uh, firepower coming to oppress another group of people. Um, so that happening... So King Leopold II, he wanted Congo for himself. So he bought Congo. Uh, and by buying Congo, mm. he basically... Um, went on what is called one of the most tragic genocide of really of, of, of our recent history because he almost killed close to 15 million people Ugh, in Congo because he didn't yeah. want any Congolese on them. What he actually wanted was he wanted to move Belgium from where it is currently in, in um, Europe and move it to Africa. That's crazy. Oh my God. So That's it, actually crazy. It's really, it's really crazy. It's funny how you're in Belgium right now. I after I just said it, I actually have to look around. I was like, "This is crazy." That I'm talking about this. It's really wild. <laughs> um, so that's a little bit of the history where Congo is, and then Congo went through a, a really strong fight of independence in 1960. So basically, Congo was bought in 1882. Uh, and in 1960, the Congolese uh, fought for independence under uh, one of Africa's really uh, great leaders, uh, 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 Lumumba, Patrick Lumumba. Mm-hmm. He's, he's of the likes of Kwame Nkrumah and the others. Mm-hmm. So really, yeah. those forefathers of Africa who fought for you know the wave of African independence. So Patrick mm-hmm. Lumumba was one of those guys who spoke out. Uh, is this big conference of the need for independence. So when that happened... Um, you know, the powers that be basically assassinated him and whoever the president was there, the coup happened and that's how Mobutu came to power. So that's how Mobutu stayed in power for 32 years. So my man basically reigned from like 1967 to like 1990, like 1999, actually. Yeah, so he was in power for a long time. So that's a little bit of the historical background of Congo. It's really complex, but Congo is one... My dad often says that Congo is one of those places that has never had time to actually rule itself because everybody is trying to put their hands in there. It's like a cookie jar that has so many candy. Everybody is trying to grab a piece. What are the major languages spoken in Congo? Major languages? Um, Congo is so rich in languages. Um, So there is... Four official languages, there's 11 main languages, and there's over 200 smaller languages. The four main languages mm-hmm. are like French. Mm-hmm. There is French, because we're colonized by the Belgium. Um, there's Lingala. Lingala is the commoners' language. That's what you go to the market to buy. Uh, like <laughs> basically, Lingala is like if you're Congolese outside of Congo and you don't speak Lingala, people doubt whether you're really Congolese. Like, are you sure? <laughs> wow. So there's Lingala. <laughs> And then there is um, Kikongo. Kikongo also is the language that came from the Congo Kingdom, which was one of the major okay. kingdom of the area. Because re- remember, you know how like people from you know Caucasian come and they they, they they put boundaries on like Africa, right? Yeah. And it makes like different people group together that that were mm-hmm. not necessarily the same kingdom. So Congo is a mixture of like yeah. really six kingdoms that were different. One of them was the Congo Kingdom. The other one was uh, the Swahili, which is spoken in the eastern part of Congo. And the other one that is spoken as well is the what? So I say what? French Lingala Swahili and um, uh, French Lingala Swahili Kikongo. Yeah, those four: French Lingala Swahili Kikongo. Those are the four major languages that are spoken. Um, and but. If you go to school, you speak French. So people who speak mostly French in Congo are regarded as educated individuals. Interesting. Okay. All right. So all right, let's kind of pick up where you left off. So at this point, you've moved to the States. Your family is with you. You've lost your uncle. Um, did you feel like you left a part of you behind in Congo? I think so. Uh, because even today, uh, you mean back then or today? Back then, and I guess now, now still. Back then, yes. You know why? Because we were going to a place where we didn't have any siblings. Um, like 
we didn't have anybody, at least that I knew, that we knew directly that were in America, right? Because, like, I don't know so much about other people's family, but in our family, there were really never a big migration to go outside of Congo because we were, we loved Congo, you know? Like, mm-hmm. no one were like, oh, you know, this country is so bad, let's leave, you know? It was, it was just, like, the, the bad part was just starting, if that makes any sense. Like, people today, yeah. are, I mean, a lot of people want to leave. But back then, like... Things were relatively well. Times were still uh, good. Even if, yeah. exactly, even if we're under the dictatorship of Mobutu for so long, Mobutu made the people to be proud to be Congolese, to be proud to be Zaira. Actually, at the time it was called Zaire. Um, to a point where yeah. one Zaire was worth two US dollar. The country was oh, so yes. strong. Yeah, it's wild. Like the country was so strong at the time, but you know when things started changing. That's where things became crazy. So me personally, I still remember a vivid, 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 vivid moment at the airport. We about to go to the checking point and I had to leave my cousins whose dad was just assassinated. And we're about to go. And I remember watching the looking at one of them, the oldest, he's, he's a twin actually with his sister. I was watching him and he said, are you coming back for us? And I don't understand how he said that because he was like 10 oh and I was like 12, goodness. right? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, of course. I mean, we're going on vacation and we'll be back, you know? But I still remember the night before we went to the airport, my mom made us give all our, our toys and our games, which was weird. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. I had to give away all my stuff. And I was like, mom, but that's mixed. I just got the PS2. You know how much that is spent <laughs> for this thing? I had to give those away. Now looking back, like I, I wasn't picking up on all those signs. I was so small, you know, and uh, I still remember that moment when my cousin said, are you coming back for us? I've actually met that cousin only 10 years later. We met wow. in the UK. So it was only 10 years later that we were able to actually reunite in person. So yeah, missed a lot. Like I haven't, some of my grandparents died haven't gotten a chance to see him. Some of them are old right now. I haven't gotten a chance to see him. Honestly, of all my family that is immediate family, only very few are made it to the state in the past, mm-hmm. you know, 13 to 14 years. Um, so, yeah. Have you been back so to the family. Congo since? No, because I, we're still considered personal grata. So, we're, wow. I haven't been to Congo. I've been to many other African countries, but my home oh, uh, is still not home yet. Mm-hmm. that's crazy so okay so can you talk about building a new identity in the states so starting school and you know not being able to speak yes. English fluently and then trying to conform and trying to blend in and you mm-hmm. know in that process losing some of your quote Africanness. exactly you know I, I love when people say yeah not speaking like English fluently I wasn't speaking English at all <laughs> because <Yeah>. remember <laughs> w- like we didn't get prepped to come to the u.s we just were running you know i spoke french all my life like i, I tell people the mm-hmm. first english language that, the first english word that i really learned was bathroom and i learned that at the airport at jfk because i never knew <laughs> that airplanes had bathrooms in them so i had to hold my pee for like 14 hours right oh, so by no. the time we landed in jfk i was like mom I need to go to the toilet. How do you say this? <laughs> she was like, bathroom. Aww. So that was one of those really early, funny moments. Um, and um, the tricky part, remember I told you guys we left in August, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, when we left, we only had, um, actually, I, I, I'm mistaken. We left a month before, right? Yeah, we, we left the 13th of July. I still remember. The 13th of July. And we had to start school in America the 15th of August. So basically we Are have about 31 days or so, or 30 days or so to learn all the language we could. And remember, we're going to public school. So we're coming from... <laughs> no more chauffeur. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Forget all that. Like, And for those of our listeners, maybe those who aren't familiar with the U.S. public school system, like bullying hazing making fun of it's like you better just have a top skin kind of thing 
Um, so now I'm an African kid. I'm going through all the things I'm going through. I'm not really realizing what is going on. I don't really speak well the language. Um, I had to start a school system. And so we took, they put us in an ESL program. At the time, mm-hmm. for those who aren't familiar with ESL, ESL is English is your second language um, programs, great programs. I mean, it's helped tremendous amount of people. But the way it was designed back then, you basically felt alienated. Like you felt there was something wrong with you because they would put you in like separate classes. They would, they would like, it was like, you know, and no disrespect, but they basically treated us like special need kids. And that frustrated me, you know what I mean? To a point where um, I would like go to class, like I will go to an ESL class, we'll stay there for like two, three periods, and then we'll go to classes like English, math, uh, and then some other general course, but the rest of the things we would do there. I was frustrated with that reality to a point where I decided to, um, uh, how can I put this? I decided to even, if I can put it, get out of that prison <laughs> in one way or another. So I learned, I was the quickest student of that school ESL program to finish the program in a year. Most people finish the program in four years, but I was, I was telling myself, I don't want to stay here. I want, I don't want anybody to look down on me if they have to make fun of me in class, which they ended up doing because I sounded quote unquote African or I sounded quote unquote, like you sound weird. You sound so different. Like, where are you from? You know, that was the worst question I used to hate. I used to, I'd be like, I'm from here. What do you mean? I still remember I still remember when I got my uh, I was, when I was finally naturalized I was like man I can finally sound American mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of like the it was a hard process um, I have to admit you know throughout basically 7th 8th ninth grade 10th grade a lot of what happened is I was bullied throughout those years the reason why I'm talking about losing my identity is because I was so frustrated with people always identifying me as an African and thus having being less than or having issues or having a problem that I decided to try to erase as much of my Africanness as I could. So I decided to be more articulate in my language. I decided to uh, be like pronunciations of word to be more precise in the intonations of words uh, I decided to not hang around other Congolese people, other people no. in my cultures. <laughs> you know, I basically, basically wanted to, like, I wanted to make myself in a quote-unquote Oreo. Like, I look black, but I'm white, you know. Uh, because, to me, being African was a negative thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, I will have to admit that it, it worked a little bit. For a lot of people, I remember one time... A person when I told them they're African, they're like, "Oh, I couldn't tell. I felt good. I was like, they can't tell that I'm African. At the moment, I wasn't seeing that I was losing myself. To me, I was like, I was gaining something. Right? I felt like, okay, they can finally love me from just being me. Uh, I didn't know that. You know, later on, they would just hate me for being black anyway. So, so. <laughs> oh my goodness! Cra- crazy story, right? Um, so that's a little bit what I can say of losing my identity. That really when it started. And as years continue, as high school came, you know, the peer pressures of high school of trying to be cool. And remember, I'm coming from an African home of pastors who are super religious about things. You know what I mean? Now I'm trying to lose all that. And in the process, I was thinking maybe losing also too much of that religion that was put on me, too mm-hmm. much of that, those those characters that were put on me from the morals from home. I was like, that was going to help me to be more hip, to be more cool. You know, I was, I wanted to be the guy. Like I was started wearing sagging pants, baggy jeans. You know, I was like, okay, this is the thing. You know, I want to be cool. I want to be like, I'm from the East side, West side. I didn't even understand what those things meant. I was like, I'm just going to say it because it sounds cool. And, uh, wait, what state were you in? I was in North Carolina. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. I was in North Carolina. Okay. And um, so wait, at, at that at that time, like at that time, would you speak? Would you still speak French or Lingala at home? Interestingly enough, I did. 
And here's why <laughs> I did is because at home, I love my parents, I love my sisters, but they were not learning at the rate that I was, right? Like they were not yeah. adjusting at the rate. I guess they were not trying to lose their identity, so <laughs> they were cool. Me, I was on a mission, so I was <laughs> changing quickly, and uh, they weren't. So at home, we would speak French. When we get out of home, we speak differently. We still joke around with my sisters. When we go to Subway, we go to Chipotle. I, I always, my older sister would joke around like, oh, she's about to put her white voice. Just watch. You know, because we were got so used of like, you speak different when you're outside of home than when you're at home. You know, at home, you can hear the accent and stuff like that. But for me, I was like, I'm going to speak even proper when I'm home, right? And uh, so, but we spoke French home because our parents were learning very slower than us. Uh, they were not in a rush to try to learn his English as quickly as we were. Um, so we still spoke French uh, very often. Lingala, to be honest, we didn't really speak at home very much. The only okay. reason being, remember Lingala is the language of like, the of the market right that's what you when you go to the market it's like okay. the every everyone's language but mm-hmm. also lingala is re, is regarded as the language of those who don't go to school because french okay. is the language of those who are educated so the problem was because we were basically in private school for most of our younger age we didn't really hang around with kids who didn't go to school that spoke lingala that well mm-hmm. yeah. so we didn't pick up on it so now we moved to a, a place and i have to also put this as a context when we moved to North Carolina, we were majority Caucasian areas. Like, mm-hmm. we didn't have that many other Africans around us to even speak Lingala with, let alone being Congolese as a whole, you know. So that didn't help. After living North Carolina, I moved to uh, Central Pennsylvania. So if it doesn't get any country, then Central Pennsylvania, I don't know what <laughs> is. So... Isn't Central Pennsylvania like Trump land, Seth? Hey, oh sister. <laughs> so, <laughs> the thing that was really interesting, let me put it this way. The first day I arrived in my high school, I love my high school, man. It's my alma mater. I love the, the, eventually the people that I started meeting with. But the first day, first day I arrived, it was me and my sister, me and my younger sister. I'm like, she's three years younger than me, so I'm the big brother. I'm the protector, you know. You know how when you come, there's that new kid, and then they bring one kid that has been there that's going to show the kid around? So we were the new kid. So there was one kid. His name is Nate Hudson. I still remember Nate. And Nate was, like, showing us the class. He was a really nice kid. He was, like, a really, like, cuddly, nice, you know, really nice guy. Like, like you couldn't really hate Nate. Nate was one of just nice with everybody guys. But I still remember he was showing us everywhere. And then we went downstairs to our locker room where the locker was. This is high school days. To a locker was. There was nobody in the hallways. All I hear, somebody from far saying, who let those niggers here? Oh, my God. And I said to myself, this is going to be good. This is going to be one of those interesting experience kind of thing. And um, so I ended up graduating from Northern. Basically, I was the only black guy in my whole graduating class. Um, it has, you know, its challenges as you can imagine, but it also has its perks. Everybody knows you <laughs> because you're only black person there. So yeah. that, that helped. I mean, I played basketball, I played football. So I was also really involved. Remember, I'm still trying to fit in at everything. So, yeah. So at, at what point did you, um, start feeling like, okay, um, maybe I should get in touch with my African when I met those African, what I, let's put it this way: when I met those Ghanaians and Nigerians <laughs> at the university, because I was like, okay. they gave me this many Nigerians and Ghanaians at the university, and then I fell in love with the African Student Association. Um, mm-hmm. I fell in love with the fact that I met very unashamed Africans, mm-hmm. like I met Africans nice. who, to my side of thing, had still had a quote unquote accent, but didn't mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. like they didn't care like they were cool with it they were very um uh they were very uh what's the word i can use um flamboyant with with mm-hmm. with their culture eating eating jollof rice uh you know <laughs> listening to davido and whiskey and all these different mm-hmm. things and i was like yo this is this is it like i'm like i've been missing this like like there was something in me i was like 
at first, I, I remember, at first when I was like, as I went to their first of their meeting, I was like, oh my God, what is going on over here? First of all, they started <laughs> super late. But then again, I got yeah, used to that. Typical, typical right? So uh, I was hey, like, where did you go to college? Because I went to the great university of the Pennsylvania State University, Penn State. Ah, PSU. Exactly. Blue and white for life. So <laughs> one of the things that I love about Penn State was it's a huge school. Again, compared to my sisters, remember, I'm not the oldest, but my experience for many of my siblings was like I was very, I was a pioneer because I was one that was trying a lot of different things. For example, my sisters, my two older sisters, my parents sent them to a private Christian school. So their school was relatively small, about three to 5,000 students. I went to a, <laughs> doesn't get any secular to Penn State <laughs> type school, and there was 47,000 students on campus. On one campus, there was multiple campuses, but the main <laughs> campus, 47,000 students, you know, sororities, frats, you know, like everything you can imagine, right? So my parents were basically, uh, I can already imagine on their knees every night, you know, trying to pray for me uh, to be protected. <laughs> so so during that time, um, when I, I got in contact with a lot of the Africans on campus, I started realizing that they knew who they were and I no longer ever knew for whether I was a Congolese, whether I was an American, whether I was black, or whether, well, I knew one thing, I wasn't white. That's one thing I, I knew, I wasn't white. <laughs> and um, So was it almost like, like, you know, do you, are you, do you associate yourself with the African-American community versus the African community? Did you find yourself in that in between? You know, that is a conversation that I think many of us Africans do not have enough about the what I call the underlying conflict that is going on between Africans and African American. We talked about it on, on one of our yeah, past yeah. episodes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you guys are yeah, I like I like that. I like that you you you're talking about this because I had one instance that happened to me in high school of a gentleman African-American gentleman, he was older than me at the time, pretty big guy. He looked like he was a gangbanger. And I'm not saying this in any disrespectful way because he was African-American. I'm just saying it because guy was tatted and he had like insignias that, you know, resembled gang stuff, affiliation. So I knew that he was not like the typical high school kid. So I remember I was taking a weight training class. So, you know, you go and train and then you go to a locker room to change back into your normal clothes to go back to your other class. I was a little bit early because I remember at the time I don't really speak the language well, so I'm not over there making jokes with people. So I'm just doing mind my own business. So I was ahead. I go into the locker. All I see is the guy comes behind me, closes the door behind him. I'm like, that's weird. Okay. So I don't mind him. I'm going to my locker. All I see is the guy saying, you're going to pay today. I'm like, at, at, the time, at this time, I'm looking like, is he talking to me? Like, what is he talking about? But I don't even know you, right? Like, but he's like, no, you're going to pay today. Why? And I look at him. I didn't say why, but remember, this time I'm not talking. He said, you're going to pay today because your people sold my people. What? And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I'm like, bro, um, no disrespect, but nobody sold you. Nobody sold your parents. I mean, you look too young to even have... Your parents probably not, weren't even during slavery. Probably your grandparents were born in America. Like, I understand what you're trying to say, but, like, the likelihood of my people sending your people and that I'm going to pay today, it seems kind of a weird thing. So I, I brushed him off a little bit, so I turned my back on him. He pulled out a knife. Crazy wow. story. I'm about to get stabbed because apparently I sold someone's cousin or something. I'm like, what is going on? I'm making light of it today, but during that time, it was really a crazy story. I got really scared. So what happened was the other students started seeing that something was weird. Um, so they opened the pride, opened the door, and then the teachers and some of the other police officers came and they had to restrain the guy. So I went back home crying. I was like, man, what is going on? If white people don't accept me, African-Americans don't accept me, like who am I, you know? So it was kind of like a, a lost identity thing. So that came back really when I was in college in at the university level because now I knew that I did not want to be an African-American. I just want to be an African. And I wanted to know mm. being an African now is, it's not just about being African because Africa is also 
pretty complex as a place, right? Mm-hmm. In my Congolese, and being Congolese is also complex, it's so vast. Like, what am I? So I went back in this whole self-searching of who really I was. Um, but college played by the role. So I lost my identity in middle school and high school and found it back with the influence of the African presence that I met at the university level. So how did you end up doing what you do now? So like, what was the transition to becoming a motivational speaker and, you know, a world traveler? Um, I started speaking really, to be honest, I I would say my parents played a vital role, you know, being both of them being pastors. um, Mm -hmm. I got pretty comfortable being in front of people. Um, For anybody who knows PKs, you have to pretend a lot, you know, put up a face. So mm. you get good at being in front of people and <laughs> after a while, you know. So, but one of the things that I love is I got really comfortable with the art of speaking, you know, speaking in my mind and stuff like that. So throughout the whole time, I started being more quiet when I was really trying to, I guess, change or transform during the those days of middle school, high school. Uh, but when I came to my last year of high school, things started changing for me. I started speaking more. I started giving more advice. When I knew that this was something I could do very well was after a while, a lot of my high school, like friends would be like, Salem, you give great advice. Like your advice are actually really sound. Like at, at one point I used to be known as like the relationship expert. I oh, used God. to be, they used to call me Mr. <laughs> Love. Like, Love and I was single. <laughs> Which was really weird, right? Like, I didn't have a girlfriend, but everybody that had a problem, like, yo, Salem got the thing. He knows. It. It's weird. He doesn't even date anybody. <laughs> so, they would come to me for something like that. And then I started speaking more um, to a point where I even got invited to go speak to Ireland at 19 years old. Um, what? Yeah, it was really crazy. I went to, to Dublin um, went to speak to a group of young people. There was over 200 young people that came there to listen to me speak. Um, so things started really opening for me there. But remember, at this time, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. Like, I haven't found myself yet. Uh, but when college came um, and I started trying to realize really who I was, I realized that I really was a leader. I put myself in leadership position. So I became the financial director of the African Student Association I was what we call a Lion Ambassador. Lion Ambassador basically is like universities have those model students who go speak to high school students about coming to their school. I was mm-hmm. one of them. I was voted uh, student body vice president. So I was a student nice. body vice president. So I really got a chance to really be in different like high level position. Leadership um, roles. Exactly. Which for me was good because it, it continuously pushed me to get better. Uh, my personal development, speaking wise, uh, opening my mind. I got a chance to meet the president of the university uh, at Penn State. I still believe Penn State's uh, used to, at least at the time when I was there, we used to put one of the best African show in America. The African show we used to put used to be called Touch of Africa. And yeah, I think Touch, it's still called that. <laughs> exactly, Touch of Africa is is really. Um, I'm gonna sound like a. I'm giving the pitch here, but Touch of Africa is really awesome. I remember we used to bring about like 800 students um, and parents of African descent that would come. It was a big event. It was like a almost like a 50 to 80k type budget of an event. Yeah, really showed. So I, I went to culture. I went to Villanova. So I know a bunch of people would you know move from Philly from the Philly area to mm. Penn State for that weekend. Um, fun times. Yeah, fun times indeed. <laughs> but yeah, I think that. That's the last of our questions. And I don't know. Do you want to say anything to close out? If and I have a question. Do you have any questions? Okay. Yeah. Um, so what would your advice be for, you know, somebody who is coming to America or the UK as a, you know, like essentially somebody who was in your shoes a couple of years ago? What would your advice be about finding their feet, retaining their identity? What would you say to them in like, you know, words of some words of wisdom? Well, the biggest thing that that happened to me, and maybe I didn't, I, I, I might have missed it or not said it clearly, but 
always being willing to have frank conversations. Uh, I think that played a vital role. See, at, at the beginning when we first came, because our parents were also going through a self-shock because like I used to blame a lot of what happened when I was younger to my parents. You know what I mean? I, I You know, being young, you know, going through the teenage phase, you blame your parents for your whole life. So I used <laughs> to just feel like it was their fault and everything that happened. Uh, but later as we started growing, we started having very, very honest conversation. Um, today I was even having a conversation with a friend saying that if that never happened, that we never left Congo, I don't think I would have as close of a relationship with my father as I have today. Why? Because my father was such a minister, he was a preacher, and everything was going so great with his life that he was barely home. Like, we didn't see him. I didn't really talk to him. You know what I mean? I don't even think I ever remember my dad back home telling me one-on-one that he loved me. Right? And um, maybe I'm being soft, man. I don't know. But, like, African kids, like, That's sometimes, like... Allowed. Exactly. That, that, <laughs> that emotional intelligence, sometimes African parents are not so quick with that. Um, so when we came, our parents made it a priority to be having frank conversation with us. I mean, I still remember when my parents, we had really conversation about our, you know, going through puberty, having frank conversations about, um, sex, about marriage, about all these different things. And that for me was really vital because I needed it. That played a, a really critical role. So I would say for someone who's coming into that situation where, you're leaving a very traumatic situation. You're living a, a place that is so difficult. Find those people that you can open up to. For me, beside my parents, I had friends. Friends that my, came earlier before me, but they came in better situation and condition than me. A friend of mine that I still remember today, her name is Sarah. Sarah helped me learn English. Everywhere I speak, I always tell the story about Sarah because I said it's because of Sarah's courage that the people listening to me have even the ability to enjoy what I'm giving to you, right? So Sarah played a very vital role. Uh, today, she's a she's an attorney. While she's actually finishing uh, her, her study, she wants to become an international uh, prosecutor. I'm very proud of what she wants to do. Um, so people like Sarah and many others who played a vital role, I would say, have those frank conversations. Find those people that you can open up fully to and... Don't don't let those things get bottled down because that can create really irreversible effects. You know, imagine I never really wanted to find back my African identity. Who would I be? Like I, I'm not African. I'm not American, and God knows I can't call myself an African American. So it's, it's tricky. Okay, yeah. well, do you have any mm-hmm. questions or comments? Um. No, <laughs> I think I... you. I mean, you you covered a lot and you gave a lot of detail that I feel like the questions I had, like you answered a lot of them. But thanks mm-hmm. for sharing yeah, your story. With I didn't us. even end up asking some of the questions that I wanted to because you answered them. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. So, in normal NYAC fashion, we will end our episode talking about what we're reading watching or listening to um does anybody want to start yeah i can start okay um this is ifeyua and i'm currently watching season two of master of none um leads to the leads to the viewing audience but it took me a while to get through season one but I know that um, everybody really loved the Thanksgiving episode of season two. So I was like, I have to make it to season two. So recently I've been watching season two and I'm actually enjoying it a lot more than season one. So, okay. yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. It's great to see some of the guest actors like Bobby Cavanaugh, uh, I think. Yeah, so just watching that and then reading The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And somebody recommended it to me because it's her favorite book. And it's been a good read so far. So, yeah. Ooh, and also still watching uh, Skinny Girl in Transit. That's still going on. Episode 3 came out on Friday. Yes. Yes, the third episode came out on Friday. And it's things are heating up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ife, what are you? So, I... 
I'm reading Roxane Gay's Bad Fem- Feminist, um, her collection of essays, which I found I, I'm really into. Um, I felt like it started off weird because the her, the first essay was about her own personal life. And I was like, ah, this is not like, why am I reading this? <laughs> but like, yeah, it got it got much better. And I love her critiques. There's one essay, this essay called How We All Lose. She essentially drags some people who say that, you know, there's no need for feminism anymore because women women have it so good now compared to before. And oh, she's gosh. like, um, if really we, nice. like, yes, we've had some progress, but that progress is not enough, you know? Like, mm-hmm. there, there's still so much work to be done. So she gives some people good dragging, and I was here for it. <laughs> um, I'm also right. reading her book, Hunger. So I'm reading two Roxane Gay books at the same time. Listening to one as an audiobook, though. Um, and Hunger is a memoir about her body, and it's like really raw and really honest and really vulnerable. And Roxanne is awesome. Listening to. Not listening to anything. Oh, wait. I'm listening to Journey Swim, but I feel like I've already recommended them before, have I? Probably. Because I love um, them. Yeah. Yeah, so listening, I went to see Jenny Swim in concert a couple of weeks ago, and I've just been listening to their whole um, catalog. They are awesome. Yeah. Let's see, what am I listening to? I'm listening to... So, okay, so there's this song called, I think it's Particular, or In Particular, yeah. one, of, one of them. So yeah. it's by... Yeah. I've heard it. What's it called? Ice Prince. Is it Ice Prince? Yeah, Ice Prince... Jidenna, is it Diplo? Some DJs. Major it's a Lisa. really, really major laser. It's so cool. I like the song came out a long time. Well, not a long time, but a while ago. But the video came out recently, I believe, and it's just it's a jam. It's so catchy. I'm also listening to DJ Copy song called Green Light. DJ Copy and Techno. Surprisingly, I kind of like it. It's just really catchy. It's stuck in my head. And what else? I am watching, or I have been watching for a while now, this new, relatively new YouTube series called Shop Talk, which is pretty much just a bunch of guys gisting in a barbershop mm. in Nigeria. Just, you know, K10 is talk. in it, right? Who? K10. I'm, I'm, he might have been on one of the episodes, but I don't think he's. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, maybe maybe he was on one of the episodes. But yeah, they just talk about different topics. You know, the usual, you know, cheating in relationships and, you know, who should lead in your... It's just like different topics. And it's just... For me, I'm like, these people are saying all these nice and wise things, but do they really practice them in real life? I don't know. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, Salem, mm-hmm. on to you. <laughs> um really interesting i am reading if i'm reading anything i'm reading um two books right now uh the first book i'm reading is the alchemist by paulo coelho so Mm. it's one of those books like everybody talks about it but you know i haven't really have read it before (laughs) so really interesting read i am loving the way it's written it's written incredible story form so i'm loving that right now and then i'm reading so good they can't ignore you by Carl Newport. Um, and this more... Somebody was just telling me about that book or I just heard it on TV or something. That's crazy. Okay, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, it's, it's a really interesting book. It talks about... Uh, the one thing I really learned about that is uh, having career capital. It's like how many people... The story basically says everybody today in entrepreneurship want to be like the next Steve Jobs and like drop out of school and go, you know, found something like the next Apple but most people can't and it talks about how someone like steve job had what they call career capital meaning enough experience before deciding to do something as crazy as uh, uh dropping school and following your passion and actually the author in the end talks about following your passion may not as be as white as vice as most people think it is really interesting um so I'm watching, I'm also watching a new YouTube channel that I found, which is called Hot Ones. And I don't know if you've heard of the Hot Ones. Basically, it's like this guy interviews like major celebrities around a 
eight hot wings and like they add like these spices and they're trying to get oh, to like the hottest like spices available and there's one called death which is i think has like uh 500,000 uh joules of heat or some crazy like that so there's like Kevin Hart and Nate DJ Khaled was on there like some other big business people on there musicians so it's really interesting because seeing those people like how they like they sometimes lose uh their their mind or they're not coherent when they get like the heat gets higher and higher it's just hilarious so i've been watching a lot of that um listening to um to be honest i'm a big podcast kind of guy uh so list, lately i've been listening i've been trying to do a round of many african podcasts believe, believe it or not i really just want to hear what is coming out of the continent so i've listened to actually most of your episodes <laughs> uh i Yay. listened to yes i listened to um another african uh, podcast called um afropreneur uh i listened to that i listened to um several other african podcasts many of them really you know i feel like were mostly filler stuff but um or like the bbc africa uh podcast that one has been around for years um they have so much content on that one so so yeah so podcast mainly what i've been listening to so yeah nice nice well thank you so so much for first of all reaching out to us and then joining us on this episode um i i like i could listen to you all day you have such an interesting story um, <laughs> thank you for having me yeah i mean your life is pretty interesting <laughs> Um but yeah no thank you so so much I really appreciate you um making time for us and joining us on this episode and thank yeah. you very much Yeah on that thank note you. I guess that's the end thank of this episode you. Bye